On behalf of Zscaler and Kerasoft, we would like to welcome you to today's podcast, focused around CXO Cheat Sheet, complying with the federal Zero Trust strategy, where you will hear from data experts at Zscaler share key considerations for the Zero Trust strategy. All right, with that, let's kick it off. Danny, do you want to tell us a little bit about the Zero Trust strategy and, and breaking down the mandate itself? So, you know, just over nine months ago, the executive order uh, to improve the nation's cybersecurity was released. Um, and there was a, a significant emphasis on moving towards zero trust. It was really shifted or focused around NIST 800-207, but there, it was, it was uh, very clear from the beginning that, you know, that there, there were drastic changes that needed to happen and the presidential um, executive order really set the tone. Well, fast forward to uh, just about a month ago, the memorandum recently released M2209 really pushes the envelope, in my opinion, really has some, some bold statements, like the federal government can no longer depend on con conventional perimeter-based defenses to protect its critical systems and data, provide secure applications over the public internet without relying on VPN, encrypting DNS and HTTP traffic. These are just a few of the things that are significant changes from what we've all been used to in the past to, to secure our, our federal networks. Yeah, and, and from my perspective, I, I wanna mark down this time. So it's two, 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 two at, you know, we'll, we'll say <laughs> about 12, 22 and 22 seconds, almost in Chicago. Uh, so, you know, this is the time that I think we can say zero trust is defined and you know, really January 26, 2022 is where we have great guidance that was put out from the White House backed by CISA with the definition of around zero trust. So previous to a lot of these discussions, you know, there was a, a, a methodology or there are statements made that, you know, zero trust is nebulous. It means a lot of things, a lot of different people. I think that's you know, really a, a kind of a dated statement. I think we do have a definition of how to organize our thoughts around zero trust and how agencies can work towards maturing in a zero trust security stance. And the reason why we're doing this is not because it's a buzzword and not because people have used this. It's because it's the natural evolution of our security stance. Traditionally, we built Castle Note. We all did that, everyone on this call. It worked well. But given the changing nature of where users are located, where applications are located, where people need to get work, what happened over the last two years with, with being able to send people home and where they can work effectively, all of this has led to a need to change and to comprehend security follows the user where they happen to be. And the principles of zero trust strategy lead us to that area where we can define security and bring it wherever we have. So this mandate and, you know, the pillars that we'll get into are a great way to really define zero trust and think about it from a systematic and evolutionary perspective. The other helpful thing it provides in addition to a definition is some deadlines, because we've all known these concepts for literally over a decade now, but there's finally some fire underneath to get some of these things done and some good solid guidance and guardrails for how to achieve those goals. Definitely. In, in this memorandum, there are some very key action items. And not only that, I, I welcome everyone to really read this. This isn't, in my opinion, a standard mandate that you see, or you'll see very you know meticulously or, or, or even the opposite kind of a nebulous statement that's made sometimes. 
here you have a really well-structured prescription and also reasoned, right? In the mandate itself, it will tell you, we're asking you to take these actions and we believe it will allow your agency to build confidence in these strategies if you take these actions, not necessarily, you know, to do it in order to meet a standard or to, to, to you know, for some action. It's very much meant to help us all grow, mature, and evolve around a growing cybersecurity trend to bring security wherever the users happen to be. You know, and, and one, one key aspect is for so many years, we've been focused on compliance. This, this memorandum and, and the just the executive order in general, it's focused on operational security. And that's the only way we're gonna be able to defend against today's threats is really to shift away from the legacy network centric security model that I thought was the right decision you know, pre-2016, 2016. It was the right decision back in. Right, right. So yeah, it's nice to see that they're they're kind of not just focusing on agencies to comply with it, but really shift them to, to what's important operationally. Definitely. And if we look at what those goals are, and they're broken down by pillar of the CISA Zero Security Trust, uh, Zero Trust Cybersecurity Maturity Model. And, you know, from my perspective, what I think is really important for everyone to take away from this webinar and as we're building our strategies is that zero trust is a team sport, that there isn't one single solution or you, you can't go and just buy a cloud and have everything in it, right? We learned that we have to put different applications and data in it. The same is with zero trust. You can't just buy zero trust. It's a strategy. It's design. It's a mindset. And there are many different technologies that go into a complete solution. And again, the, these pillars here are a really great way to think about where can I find wins? Where can I find areas to improve? Where can I find ways that I can get quick wins along this path without having to have a very large, long program where you know, we don't get wins along the way or we're waiting for some goal years out? We can get wins in the short term by following this uh, maturity model and looking for areas of improvement. So if we, you know, if we think about this and we break this down from a high level, right, you know, all of this is about identity. We need the users to be able, we need to understand who these users are and grant access. And they're great technologies that we can partner with as Zscaler to be able to understand that identity. When it comes down to devices and understanding what's going on there, in order to keep that perimeter and in order to understand where the user's contexts are, there's a telemetry at that endpoint that can be shared from those devices. And then from a network connectivity perspective, just like Danny said, and as the mandate states, the internet is a mechanism to send this data and is it can be used as a secure network within our agencies. And then we'll break it down to applications and workloads where people are getting the work done, where the data resides. These are all the pillars that we need to think about as we apply cybersecurity standards around zero trust within this paradigm in our agencies. So since we broke down the mandate high level, let's talk about the pitfalls. When it, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that go into consideration here and, and things that we need to be able to take into consideration as we build our strategy. Lisa, any, any pitfalls you think are important for us to focus on or talk about today? Yes, for sure. And I come to this with a long history in these pitfalls because I've been with Zscaler about five years. Prior to that, I spent the past 15-ish years doing 
firewall VPN and NAC on the vendor side. So I was with NetScreen. We got acquired by Juniper Networks. We got spun off a decade later as Pulse Secure, really creating these castle and moat infrastructures. And before that, I was a security analyst contracted to the US EPA. I ran client to gateway and business to business VPNs for Blue Cross Blue Shield in North Carolina. And the through line for all of this was we were heavily regulated environments trying to connect users to applications securely. And then I was on the vendor side trying to help organizations like mine. And we were using the tools that we had available. We had perimeter security. We had the problem of securing the network to try to protect the data and the applications that lived in it. I would say that one of the biggest pitfalls of zero trust today would be looking backward rather than looking forward. It's theoretically possible to do zero trust with a network-focused security control. I did it for decades, literally. Wasn't called that at the beginning, but we, you know, NAC, SDP, whatever you wanted to call it. The challenge there is zero trust is really about connecting users only to the resources that we want them to access. And that really has nothing to do with the network at a baseline level. It has everything to do with context. So we can either take the existing tools that we've all known for years and frankly, try to extend them into an abstraction layer that they really aren't suited for. Or we can take a deep breath and recognize that we may need to let go of some of our sunk costs and modernize our security approaches to keep up with the changes that have already happened in cloud and mobility, to keep up with the advancements in technology. So I would say that that pitfall that I'm trying to identify is being so focused on extending your existing architecture and tools into this new arena that you don't give yourself the minute to take a step back and survey the landscape and see what new tools and approaches are out there that could make your life simpler. <laughs> what do you think, Jose? Where do you see the pitfalls here? Yeah, I think I think you hit a really cool point to think about for everyone is that, you know, from a tools perspective, this is key to think of this as an option that you have in your toolbox. And the reason why from a pitfalls perspective, I think that's really important is that we see, you know, kind of a tendency to think about these things in very long terms within the government by default, right? We'll think about a five, 10 year program. But if we think about it from a perspective of I'm rolling out a new application across my agency. I have a new program that's coming to play. How am I going to build cybersecurity through this program, through this application, through this access that's needed within my agency? And if I look at it from that perspective, I can build in these principles into new programs without having to go back and build a very long, complicated, hard to deploy strategy that can take years to get there. We don't have years, you know, yes. there, there's, there is a, there is, in case everyone, anyone hasn't uh, been noticing, there is a, an extreme nation state attack that is happening on a minute by minute, second by second basis throughout all of our, you know, enterprise and our federal government agencies and everyone on this call and people are in the middle of this fight. So moving towards these principles are helping us to rapidly get to a place where we can still allow our users, we could allow people to get the work done, but we can leverage these tools in a way in the short term to get benefits and increase our cybersecurity stance. So that's right. the way I look at it is pitfall is let's not wait until five years to get this done. Let's think about ways to get wins along the road on current programs and current applications that we're looking at rolling out today. 
And there's another key point that ties into that, which is I'm not suggesting we throw the baby out with the bathwater. If we assess our existing ecosystem of solutions, a zero trust approach is not a point product and it's not even a single control. It's framework in which many different elements work together to protect based on identity context, device context, network may contribute context. It may be part of the target application context, data context. There are many tools that we're using today that do carry forward identity and access management tools, endpoint management and endpoint protection tools, logging and threat intelligence tools. So when we look at what we can accomplish quickly, it's really a matter of what can we easily reuse and what new pieces can we seamlessly integrate to accomplish some of these forward-looking security goals. Danny, I know that you've had an interesting take on this recently because I think Jose and I are maybe more technology-focused in this answer, but from a cultural standpoint, where do you see the pitfalls? You know, let me touch on the technology part first. I 100% agree on everything you guys just said. We really didn't have those options. You know, I keep going back to 2016, 2017. I don't know if it was Struts, WannaCry, Petya, not Petya, or if it was just the Cloud First initiative. But everything seemed to shift around that point, at least for me. So we couldn't use the, the technologies that we had in place to actually effectively prevent lateral movement right? Reduce our attack surface, prevent exfiltration. It was a monumental task to be able to implement security controls at every single one of the networks you operate, right? When you're talking about a large, you know, distributed network, you have to replicate that security stack. So, you know, now with modern cybersecurity solutions, cloud delivered cybersecurity solutions, you're able to actually move faster, you know, and actually, it, finally, it's achievable, in, in my opinion. But to answer your question about really the biggest pitfall I see is uh, not a technical one. I think the technology is here. Like, we have the solutions that could get us there. It's the mindset shift. It's the, you know, the people that have been used to doing the same thing. And, and I, again, I was one of them but looking at it from a different way. So, so really being able to get to a true zero trust state requires everybody, right? All teams from the application teams to the networking teams to the security team. I mean, it really re requires an army, right? To be on the same page. And we've been operating in such silos forever. You know, so I really think the cultural mindset shift is gonna be the biggest, uh, one of the biggest hurdles. That, that we'll see. And we see that across private sector as well as public sector. Layer eight is continuously the hardest layer. Excellent. And, you know, if we, if we think about this, I think we had a poll question out there. So I just, just wanted to address that as well. So, uh, you know, the first poll question that we had is, uh, you know, if we've identified or know who is responsible in our agency for zero trust strategy, um, as we, as we break down the mandate, there are some action items that we'll get to, and those are going to be responsible by individuals. And you know, to Danny's point, from a cultural and mind point perspective, we're seeing great movement within our agencies to think about this and build teams around zero trust, try to pull in the various silos and look forward to areas that we can make change. So finding out in your agency, who are those responsible parties, Working with them, working across the different silos that are in there is going to be important for all of us from a cultural perspective to be able to get to a place where we can make that change. 
So if you don't know who is responsible in your agency for zero trust, it's a good idea to reach out. The CISO's office usually has that. Share that with you know anyone that you're working for on these projects as you're building up these strategies to make sure that we're in alignment. And to Danny's point, we can all work zero trust as a team sport. You, you know, one more point on the cultural uh, mindset shift. You know, and not to go on a separate tangent about the CISO's reporting structure, but you know, the zero trust lead for your agency has to be able to understand each one of these pillars and really the the underlying cybersecurity drivers, right? Because they're going to be the ones on the front lines, you know, trying to convince the naysayers that be open-minded, right? And it's time for change. And this is why we're changing. So in my opinion, and maybe it's just a question, I would assume the zero trust lead for an agency would be the CISO. But, One would hope. <laughs> there are probably many ways to do it, but I'm thinking if it isn't the CISO, there at least needs to be really tight coordination. If we think about this from the action items that are on, on our way to be able to comply with this, you know, there's some specific call-outs in this uh, mandate. So when we look at down the road here where there are some action items, do we want, can we get into a discussion a little bit about what are some areas that you see in this mandate that folks can focus on and where they could get some wins? Shifting that mindset from the network security-based approach, right? Network-centric, um, you know, deploying tools in your security stacks and really shifting to um, that application layer. I mean, that that's... In my opinion, you could use modern cybersecurity solutions to connect users to applications, and you, you don't have to rip and replace. You don't have to make it a five-year project. You, you could achieve that quickly. But uh, go ahead, Lisa. I would say a lot of organizations and agencies were already modernizing identity and access management, for example. Not only from a technological standpoint, moving to some of the more flexible cloud-delivered solutions for identity and access management, but also in terms of the amount of context they contain and how that context can be used. So that could be as simple as aligning department or group or role attributes with the targets of policy, the things you want to protect. It could get a little more complex and start to reach into things like conditional access where you're moving beyond simple user context to also include other elements of context like how did they authenticate or are they on a managed device or not? So when we think about particular technologies that are evolving, what we see most in my role, at least, is that organizations are increasing the protection for their endpoints with modern tools like a CrowdStrike or a Carbon Black, increasing the granularity and the flexibility of their identity and access management with platforms like Azure AD, Okta, and Ping, and then leveraging those to provide context for a cloud-delivered zero-trust approach, such as Zscaler's private access solution. So with private access, that is a FedRAMP high, and I think PATO for IL-5 as well, cloud-delivered access solution that leverages user context, device context, and then only provides access to authorized resources. So if you roll all the way back to the DISA black core concept well over a decade ago now, that never really got off the ground because the tools to build it were so complex. Full mesh IPsec VPN was job security, but not necessarily scalable or manageable at scale. 
And now what we're seeing is we're taking a much more modern approach. We're still using encrypted tunnels, but they're dynamically provisioned TLS encryption. We're leveraging any network. We don't have to have trust in the network at all. We can use transport via the internet and put a secure overlay across that, but effectively get the same result, building a black core where the only visible applications are the authorized applications. Jose, does that get more towards what you were intending? Yeah, I, I think those are all great areas to call out. Um, one thing that I think is important from a specific action item that's really interesting to call out is first, everyone's from an agency perspective are asked to put together a strategy and deliver that strategy by the end of March. So the, again, the mandate came out January 26, relatively quick turnaround to be able to get the strategy. But I feel like, and Danny, you probably know this more, Within our agencies, there's been a lot of momentum and a lot of strategy that's already been put into play. So it's really a matter of publishing and sharing these out in the next 60 days. And one specific call out that I think is really interesting for everyone on this webinar and everyone to think about as we go down the strategy is there is a specific ask to look at FISMA moderate systems within your agency to find systems that maybe aren't accessible directly over the internet, identify a good system that you would like to, again, create easier access that is secure, visible, that is able to, to make sure is compliant with the federal government standards and accreditation and make it accessible and use the zero trust strategies in order to do that. So it's called out, it's in section four, it's something that everyone can um, go ahead and take a look at. And the other aspect of this win that every agency can get is that it specifically says the reason why this is in there is in order to help unify agencies around a strategy and build in systems that can build confidence within the agency. So it's a great way to think about this. And again, it's something that I think here at Zscaler, we've talked to many of our federal government customers. We have a large install base across the civilian federal government. And in those conversations, a lot of what we see is agencies working on use cases to get wins. And that mindset, that strategy that has led to success is shared in this mandate and is what is essentially asked of our agencies to go find a system and follow the zero trust strategy to, to get that accessible. I think that's incredible. I think that's you know a, a good way to, to get a win and, and it complies with this mandate to be able to move this forward. So looking forward to being able to help with that. That does not mean identify a moderate system and put it in the DMZ, wrap firewall rules around it. That's where I really hope the zero trust lead at each agency is guiding the whole process because that's that's kind of the old way of doing it. A true Zero Trust solution connects that user to an application. And if you don't have access, say I'm a bad guy on the internet, I can't even see the application anymore, right? It's invisible to me. So yeah, just wanted to kind of put a note there on the, don't run out and <laughs> go put, put, put an application in your DMZ and open it up. So you've clearly identified what not to do. The next step is figuring out what to do. And again, this is where private access from Zscaler can really help because we can enable access over the untrusted internet 
without any external attack surface. Not only do you not have to expose the application itself, you also don't even have to expose the infrastructure for connectivity. So unlike a VPN that's sitting in a DMZ because it has that open inbound listener, it's a target of attacks, whether it be denial of service attacks or more targeted attacks against vulnerabilities or weak passwords. All of that, obviously, if you look at the DHS and CISA alerts over the last two years, the attackers have figured out we're all coming in remotely. You know, why do bank robbers rob banks? It's where the money is. Why do attackers target the VPNs? Because that's how we're all getting to everything today. If we can eliminate that external facing attack surface of the VPN itself, we can provide access to the resource without exposing the resource or anything about it to the internet. And we can even minimize lateral movement by only exposing that resource to authorized users. That goes a long way to accomplishing the goals of zero trust in a way that you also don't have to change your network topology. You don't have to rip and replace any of your existing infrastructure. You don't have to rewrite or wrap the application itself. So it's really set up a parallel traffic path, provide the access and ensure that it's secure, and then think about what you can decommission that is currently offering more attack surface or more cost to deliver the same access. It's a much safer, in some ways, transition because you don't have a rip and replace. You don't have an irrevocable commitment along the way. Jose, can you help us understand a little more about how Zscaler's solutions map to some of the zero trust architectures that have been identified? Absolutely. And we can do this from a perspective of a use case, an example of what it would take, what it takes in order to get access to applications in the real world and what that flow looks like across the pillars of our zero trust cybersecurity maturity model. And think of it also from an ecosystem uh, perspective, right? This isn't just uh, a Zscaler solution. This is us working together within the ecosystem in the existing infrastructure and technology that exists as well as leveraging what's out there. So and everything here is things that are generally already in place, right? Exactly. So if we take this from a high level, right? What we're talking about is our devices, right? The devices that are, you know, potentially GFEs, government furnished equipment, or mm -hmm. user-owned equipment, BYOD, what have you. The devices that are out there doesn't require new endpoint devices in order for people to have a zero trust connection. And if we walk that through from a user and identity perspective, this is existing infrastructure that may be in place within an agency. So essentially everyone in the federal government almost has an active directory. There's ways to turn this and use standards-based technology of ADFS or SAML 2.0 in order to enable an external identity for these users and leverage that uh, you know, across the internet or leverage our existing ecosystem partners that are out there that, great, that make great identity and management systems that have great IDPs and expose those externally so that users can get access to that wherever they happen to be. And that's in place in most agencies today. And if not, it's definitely from a cybersecurity maturity perspective, it's an area for us to focus on to try to help find that way that we could have external facing IDP as that's a core tenant and, and almost the first step when it comes to zero trust. And then from a network perspective, let's use the internet. So that's what these clouds are out there for. It doesn't require you to to uh, invest into expensive WAN connection. It doesn't require you to invest in expensive private cloud connections. It's a commodity connection. Get a place where you could plug in, get connectivity to the internet, 
that's what you need in order to make this connectivity. And we can build that security model all the way through the connectivity. That's really what Zero Trust is about. If you have to be in a specific network location in order for Zero Trust to work, and it only works when you're in that specific network location, that's probably not Zero Trust. So we want to be able to use the network connectivity that people have available wherever. And then from a data perspective, this is the data, this is the applications that our agencies are providing to our users, and they can be SaaS-based applications. The data can be on-prem or in the cloud. Wherever you happen to have these data and applications, it should not matter. It should not force you into placing data and applications in specific locations in order to have a zero trust architecture. And that's a key thing to think about. Again, we want to be able to support a modern cybersecurity stance of allowing users to get access to apps and data as securely as possible wherever they happen to be for the most part across our agencies. And if we think about that as a default, right, as we roll out applications and programs, and this is the way that we do this going forward from this day, we get the benefit of, guess what? This works when you're on-prem too. So you're able to, to essentially kill two birds with one stone, allow that activity based on any stance where the user happens to be. And these from a high level are where we see the principles themselves and the existing infrastructure that's in that. Does that make sense? That's the framework that we are inserting ourselves into. All right. So let's take this as an example and we'll walk through what connectivity scenario could look like. So with Zscaler, we have a zero trust platform that is accredited in the cloud. We have FedRAMP high accreditation that is JAB authorized. We also have DOD IL-5 as, as you stated earlier. So when we talk about allowing accreditation, especially to private applications, from a FedRAMP perspective, we have the highest levels of accreditation that you have there. When we're talking about FISMA moderate systems, you need at least generally a FISMA moderate, or I'm sorry, FedRAMP moderate accreditation in order to get access to those FISMA moderate systems. In this case, you have the option of a FedRAMP high zero trust access methodology that can be put in place that is accredited through the JAB. That's an, that's an option that you have there and can meet the accreditation standards that most civilian federal government agencies have and our government has on the DOD side from an IL-5 perspective. When we talk about ZIA, we have FedRAMP moderate authorization on that, and we're in process and ready. We're actually ready, which means we've done a lot of the work on the back end, and we're working through our final uh, signatures for high. So this has FedRAMP accreditation today, and we're working to even improve that to a higher level over time that should happen uh, this year. So it's a, it's a great platform to think about. This is, again, a way that you can invest without having to invest in expensive architecture and infrastructure that you place on-prem that you have to manage and maintain over time. This is cloud. This is why we've put those applications and why we've put that data into the cloud because it's easier for us to turn this on. So if we think about it from that perspective, we could get some quick wins by leveraging modern technology, leveraging cloud systems in order to enable zero trust. So if we break this down to the next step, here we have the ICAM system and the IDP, and here we're integrating with those existing systems. The key point here is if you have a standards-based system, if you're using SAML 2.0, if you're using the standard technologies that are out there, which is highly recommended, it's gonna give you the most flexibility, it's gonna give you integration within SaaS and other applications that you may be out there doing. It can also function with 
two-factor authentication. So essentially, this system is the system that will allow you to PIV off, will allow you to CAC off, will allow you to put in a, a one-time password, which is critical, critical when, it, when uh, accessing systems over the internet. You need that second factor, you need that OTP, you need something that will make sure that just because someone had physical access to maybe a token or has a password that they don't get access to these systems, that second factor is critical. And the IDP systems that are out there, you wanna invest in and you wanna look at from a standards-based perspective. So Zscaler can integrate with those standards-based. It doesn't require you to have to go build something new or build something specific or build a zero trust identity system. It's a standards base that's in most government agents today and we can integrate and leverage and use. So if we break this out further, when it comes to getting access to say those uh, FISMA moderate systems, there is a piece of this infrastructure that you wanna have on the inside of these networks within uh, our government agencies, wherever they happen to be, if it's infrastructure as a service or if it's on-prem data centers. And this is essentially the man on the inside that creates a secure zero trust connection. Lisa, did you want to talk a little bit about, you know, th this piece of the infrastructure and what um, sure. these app connectors mean? Right. So very quickly, unlike a traditional VPN, which sits at the edge of the network in a DMZ and waits for an incoming connection, these app connectors sit within the network and they make an outbound only connection to the Zscaler cloud. We do this for both the control plane, which is a persistent TLS connection as well as the data plane tunnels, which are dynamic and on-demand. They're all mutually authenticated and certificate pinned to protect the data and resist man-in-the-middle attacks. And one of the other benefits here is that these app connectors are cattle, not pets, if you're from the DevOps world. You load a generic image, put a provisioning key on it with a cryptographic identity, it phones home to the Zscaler cloud, and it is bound to your tenant. Everything else, configuration, management, traffic delivery, traffic distribution comes from the Zscaler cloud. So this follows the Gartner SASE model, the secure access service edge, where the intelligence is in the cloud and the components at the edge are as thin as possible. Perfect, uh, thank, thanks for that breakdown. And again, key component in order to make sure that you have that secure connectivity and it's, and again, as you said, it's not end to end to end. I mean, it's not end to end, it's end to end to end because we're, we're making sure that we parse those connections and the user doesn't have a clear path all the way through to that internal network, which is the key principle when we talk about zero trust access. So if we break this down a step further and we talk about the components that are needed in this example of zero trust access, you, you can have an agent at the endpoint and this agent can integrate with the EDR solutions that are out there in order to make sure that we get telemetry from the endpoint or it could pull telemetry itself. This is a key change and, and something to think about from a deployment perspective in order to roll this out. But what's really clear in the mandate and where this ties back is there's definitely, definitely a clear direction around EDR, clear direction around modernizing the ability to get telemetry and secure endpoints as opposed to passive solutions that we traditionally used in the past. So the one thing I wanna make sure is clear is, you know, EDR is, a, is about maturity. It's a different way to think about this, but it's not zero trust alone, right? It, it, it's, it's easy to kind of misconstrue some of the guidance that are out there and some of the way the mandate is written where, you know, EDR is zero trust. EDR is a component of zero trust and it's important to think about 
how you can implement that in your agency. With Zscaler, we can integrate again with the EDR and pull telemetry from that, and we can have our client on that endpoint. You can also create clientless connections and create a zero trust connection to a cli clientless to the system. So we have the technology to be able to do that. So for example, in say a GFE example, you can roll out a Zscaler client connector on that endpoint. You can create that clear connection. You could get posture and information from that endpoint. But if you have a contractor access and a use case along those lines, you essentially can create a browser-based connection still following the zero trust principles without requiring you to re-architect, redesign, or build something different into the system. So if we build this out from a use case and access perspective, the user is going to attempt to access a resource. And from a user's perspective, the great thing about this is it's much simpler and easier. So user simply goes to a website in this example. That's it. Types in a URL into the browser. As opposed to going through tedious, you know, sometimes tr troublesome VPN connection that might have some type of difficult comply to connect, you know, uh, information that's given to user that someone has to decipher in order to connect. So it also, again, if in those in those examples of a VPN, you're getting a full network access and people can use laterally. Here, we're allowing our users to access this simply just again by typing in a URL and then that is routed to our zero trust platform and we can make those access decisions based on integrating with the existing IDP. And it's not only for web applications. We can do this for fat client apps like file shares, RDP connections, even complex enterprise applications like SAP. Great point. It's not just web apps. And so if we think about this uh, from a perspective of getting of remote users now getting access and they might want to get to a resource on the internet. Traditionally in a castle remote architecture, we, the IT folks, may not be able to see that or we'll get passive after the fact telemetry of what the user was doing in a, you know, kind of a trickled out basis. In this example, the user is going to a publicly facing internet. It's not going through agency network. And we can see the telemetry of that connection all the way through. We can get an idea of what the user is doing and we can protect that user while they're accessing these resources through the internet. It's a really interesting way to think about how you can bring that security of an on-prem security stack into the cloud and protect your users wherever they happen to be. Within this connection, you could get deep packet inspection, you could find out, uh, you could essentially break and encrypt and see what's happening in there and protect those users across many different standard security practices that are out there. It's a great uh, solution and technology. And again, it, it secures that user wherever they happen to be. And critically here, the controls are applied in line between the user and the resource they're requesting, unlike traditional network-centric mechanisms that might use a full tunnel IPsec VPN to capture all the traffic, both inbound and outbound, bring it back to a data center, send it out through a stack of security appliances, up to the resource, back to the data center, back to the user. There's a lot of hairpinning and a lot of bandwidth consumption, a lot of latency and complexity introduced. We don't need that. We bring the user through our cloud directly to the resource and you get the visibility, the control from that stack of functions now virtualized. It's like a virtual TIC 3.0 stack. 
Exactly. Thank you. And again, it, a great point because it meets the client standards that are out there from a TIC 3.0 perspective. We have a TIC 3.0 overlay that we can share with our customers. We meet the standards and the use cases that are out there so we can roll that out. And that's why our customers have done that. From a CASB perspective, if you have specific API integration within the SaaS that's, that, that's out there, the security platform can tie into that from a CASB perspective. And we can help, as you pointed out, in band. We could also help out of band if we need to. So again, adding that security, bringing it to the cloud, allowing users to be able to, to bring that security with them wherever they happen to be. And then if we take this use case further as an example of how we can uh, get wins with this zero trust mandate and find systems that we can be able to help secure under these modern cybersecurity maturity principles, we can look at access to the private applications. So things that are not on the internet. And this is where Lisa gave a good discussion about what happens from an app connector perspective. And we can think about this from a connectivity perspective now. So that decision to get access into these applications, wherever they happen to be, is context-based and aware. Lisa, can you, can you break that down a little bit further? Certainly. So when a user requests access to a private resource, and this gets back to the more traditional definition of zero trust access. That private resource is not automatically available or even visible to that user. We don't connect an endpoint to a network and then lock them out of the things we don't want them to see. Instead, when a user requests access to that resource, the private access policy engine looks at all of the context available. User identity, device context, did they come in with a web browser or a fully brokered client connection? Are they on a known network or not? What is the risk score coming from some of our integration partners? There's a whole suite of criteria available for policy. And only if they pass that set of criteria is the application even made available to them. This goes down to specific services on the same backend system. So for example, you might have a file share that many people need access to. So you might say employees on government furnished equipment get access to it. Contractors on third-party equipment get access only if they're running the client and they have the ability to provide posture information about the device. No one else gets access to it. The other case there is a file server administrator. So instead of consuming a file share, they may need to RDP into the system to manage the file server. If a regular employee, a, a compliant contractor, either try to RDP into that file server, they won't even see it as responsive. So the services themselves are granularly provisioned to only appropriate end users. And the data plane tunnels are set up on demand. They carry only the authorized traffic and they follow the shortest path to the user, taking into consideration everything from geographic proximity to the reachability of the backend application. So it contributes to a dynamic data plane environment where I might have a connection through one combination of cloud broker and app connector to a resource in a data center, and then a connection through an entirely different app connector to a resource in the cloud, both of these connections simultaneously. And as an end user, I can't see the difference. That means that if you are modernizing applications and migrating from the data center to the cloud, it can be completely transparent to the end user. And it also means that you don't have to expose any of your underlying network topology, naming conventions, relationships between systems. So it really cuts off the ability for a malicious user to do any kind of reconnaissance as well. We eliminate that external attack surface and we also drastically reduce the internal attack surface and the potential for lateral movement. The last point, last point I just want to make sure is clear for everyone too, is when we talk about SIM and SOAR, 
the mm-hmm. visibility. This is yes. key to this to zero trust systems and key to this example of the system is we get to see the transactions that are happening over the internet within our agency view. And we can share that with CISA. We can share that with the existing law that's out there in order to be able to, to have that information sharing. That is a key pillar of zero trust strategy that's been outlined within the presidential mandate at the end of 2021 and as well as in 2022. So we want to make sure that the systems are designed not to store all of the data, but to put it into an area and have the functionality to be able to share that with any of the resources that need access to that data at that time. And again, in this example, we can do that. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information on how Kerasoft or Zscaler can assist, please visit kerasoft.com slash zscaler or email us at zscaler at kerasoft.com. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.